you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. I spoke with a handful of pastors this last week, just about a variety of different things, ministry-related. Um, when asked what we were walking through in the Bible these days, I told them we're in the book of Hebrews, and that this week we get to Hebrews chapter 6. And uh, each of the pastors that I said that to kind of went, oh, oh you're getting to Hebrews 6. Wow. Because Hebrews 6, you see, is one of the most debated passages in the entire New Testament in our day. In fact, if you were to list out probably top 10 big questions, problem verses, wonderings of how to deal with the passage, you would very likely find that Hebrews chapter 6, at least these first 12 verses, would be on that list. I'm actually really looking forward to preaching on this, even though I've already walked through a lot of the parts of this topic that people struggle with in in previous passages. I'm looking forward to doing this for for your benefit today. It's going to take a couple of weeks. I expect this is going to be like I sometimes offer up. This is going to be kind of a two-part sermon, okay? At, At least, at least that I know. Lord willing, next week... We'll be right back in this, and I hope to, uh, to pick up the pieces that have not yet been covered very well and maybe answer any remaining questions that could come from that also. But here's what we're going to do. Read through Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. We're only going to cover about the first six verses uh, in, in more depth today, but we're going to read through 1 through 12. And then uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go back through it together. Let's, let's read it. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith toward God, and of faith toward God, and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we love the Bible, and we are eager to open every passage in it. Uh, Lord, we know that some passages are harder than others, and so we ask for your help as we look through this. We ask for you to, to set aside for us in our own minds and hearts uh, the preconceived notions we might have uh, about categories of doctrine and maybe even about this text. Lord, let us just see it clearly. We just want to hear from you today. Father, for myself, I pray right now, please mine out any error in what I might offer up uh, to these people today. Help me to be honoring to your word in such a way that I would submit to it. 
So, Lord, uh, let truth go out in a way that is clear and helpful. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, that first verse, first couple of verses we went through today says this. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Now, the author here has just been offering up a rebuke to his hearers because he wants to preach on the priesthood of Jesus in light of this Old Testament character named Melchizedek. And we we talked a little bit about that in past weeks. We're going to get into a lot of Melchizedek stuff in the upcoming weeks. But he knows this is a little bit of a difficult, complicated topic. So in order for him to talk about it, he needs people to tune in. And he's frustrated that his audience has become dull of hearing. It's the language he uses just a couple of verses before this. So it's built on that. He then says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. I want you to be mature in your thinking got a few questions here, but the first question is, what does he mean by this phrase, elementary doctrine? And are we to see this elementary doctrine and the subsequent list as a good thing or bad? He says, let us leave it. Let us leave it. So does he mean, go away from that stuff, it's bad, or does he mean something else? Well, first, let's look at how he talks about this elementary doctrine. He says that we should not have to lay again a foundation, which means that that foundation has already been laid. He says that this elementary doctrine includes faith toward God, which is a good thing. Later, he'll say that this we will do. We will lay this foundation again if we need to. That's coming in the next verse. So I want you to think about the foundations of your life and learning prior to reaching maturity. That's, that's the kind of illustration he's using, the metaphor, the maturing of a person. He's applying that then to our spiritual life and what we know and understand. You learned life basics, eating, bathing, dressing, walking and talking. You learned all those things. In your education, what did you learn? You learned the alphabet, the times tables. You learned the basics of the rules of grammar. Lots of things you had to memorize in your earliest days. None of those are to be thrown out now that you're an adult. But it would be a sign of a very unhealthy adult indeed. If you needed someone to teach you again how to eat, walk, talk, do your ABCs, etc. So these elementary doctrines are things that are good, that are foundational, that ought to have been acknowledged and known and built upon in the maturing. The second question is, are these elementary doctrines Old Covenant doctrines or New Covenant doctrines? So let me frame what what I mean by that question. Because you probably have it if you understand the framing. This author is writing to Hebrews. That's why it's called Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. He's talking to them about things that they should know from their Old Testament, the days of God's Old Covenant with his people, the Israelites. There are things that they would have learned there that they would have known that we sometimes need to be reminded by because none of us are Old Testament Hebrews. What is he talking about here? Is he saying that let us leave the Old Testament things, the things of the Old Covenant? Or is he saying that there are new covenant things you need to move beyond? 
I want you to consider the list. The list that's right here in the bottom half of this passage I have up on the screen. There are six things listed, and they're grouped in three pairs. The word and kind of shows you they're grouped in three pairs. Let's read through those again. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, all of these things could easily be seen to fit in either the new or the old covenant, with the only exception, perhaps, of that washings and laying on of hands language. You see that? And while the word used for washings here is derived from the same word for baptism in the rest of the New Testament, the grammar suggests that he's talking about the ceremonial washings that were a part of Old Covenant worship. It's the the exact same form that's used in the two other places in in the New Testament that talk about ceremonial washings, not baptism of a person as a symbol of their new covenant with Jesus. Additionally, while we do see a few times in the New Testament where the laying on of hands was a part of conversion, it is neither normative nor nor prescribed. However, in the Old Testament, laying on of hands was a critical part of the worship of the people as they symbolized the passing of their guilt for sins to an animal that was to be sacrificed. That was very significant to the Old Testament people. So it does seem to me that this list is, in fact, pointing to elements of Old Covenant worship. Now, it could be either, and the point would still be clear. You need to grow past some things in your thinking. You're still thinking like a child and need to think like an adult. That could still fit if it was New Covenant, but I think... I think he's talking about Old Covenant worship elements. Don't get bogged down just in living according to Old Testament, but move on to the New Covenant promises, upon which we have new things built on old foundations. The next verse he says, And this we will do if God permits. I just think this is neat. As a pastor, he's not stubbornly refusing to help them. He's expressing frustration over their lack of maturity. Additionally, his willingness to revisit those foundations is a reminder to us that the list he just gave us is still valuable to the life of a believer. So so if my reading of that text is correct, and he's talking about Old Covenant things, this is what that would mean. It is good for you and I to read and to understand the Old Testament foundations of our faith. This is why as a church, we we do expository preaching, one verse at a time. We just walk through passages. And when we finish one book, we go back to the opposite testament. So we're in New Testament now. When we're done with this, we'll go back to Old Testament and then New. We we go back and forth because we think the whole Bible still applies to us. It is good for you and I to know and understand Old Testament foundations for our faith. The rest of the book of Hebrews is actually going to be a great help to us New Covenant people, New Testament people, to see how our New Testament attaches to and builds on the old. That's, that's what's awesome about the book of Hebrews. We get to do that through our entire time in it. But else I want you to remember as you think about this, this is here for our benefit. Christians today need to be prepared to receive the rebuke that this author offers up. We need to grow to maturity. We need to move beyond Certain foundations that were set. Not to forsake them, but we need to grow and build on our faith. 
through the knowledge of God's word. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So right out of the gate, this is, this is kind of the crux of the difficult part for many people. It starts with, for it is impossible. Something is impossible. What's impossible? Well, there's a lot of qualifiers crammed in here. So let's just simplify in order to dial in on what exactly he is saying is impossible. Let me simplify this if, if you'd permit me. He, would, he says this, it is impossible for certain people to be restored to repentance. Remove the qualifiers for a second. It is impossible for certain people to be restored to repentance. That's what he's saying. The question then is, for whom is this impossible? The question is, who are the certain people? Now, there are six phrases used here to describe the subjects of this sentence. Let's look at those again. Number one, they've once been enlightened. Two, they have tasted the heavenly gift. Three, they've shared in the Holy Spirit. Four, they've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Five, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. And six, and then have fallen away. That's the who. That's what's being described about the who. So if you haven't already had the question come to mind... Here's the big question about this passage. Does this describe, A, false converts who have finally and definitively rejected the gospel? Or B, genuine believers who've lost their salvation? Well, this is the crux, so I'm going to say that again. There's, There's two major possibilities going on here, and who are the certain people? Who is being described here? They are either false converts who never have been saved before, who think they're saved but are not saved, part of the visible church, not part of the invisible church, people who have finally and definitively rejected the gospel. That's one possibility. And the second possibility is that this is talking about people who are genuine believers, born again, regenerate, saved, who then go on to lose their salvation. Now, before we answer that question, we need to pause. There are actually a handful of things we need to get on the table. You may already even be able to tell that there is more than one hard question to deal with here. Might I remind you that the author just warned us against being dull of hearing and demanded maturity in our thinking. And while technically he's not yet even gotten to the Melchizedek priesthood teaching that he said requires sharp hearing, we find ourselves already needing to tune in and to think carefully. So let's consider a few things at a time here. First, what is falling away? Because that's the thing that's distinct here, right? You see, you see there's six qualifiers to help us understand who the certain people are that cannot be restored to repentance. It's impossible 
for them to be restored again to repentance. Four of them are, are seem good, or five of them, excuse me, seem good, right? They've tasted the heavenly gift, they've been enlightened, shared in the Holy Spirit, but one of them, and then have fallen away. Now, the, the language there is actually, and have fallen away, but that's implied. That's, that's what happens subsequent to them already having shared in those other five things. There's one that's bad. They've fallen away. What is the falling away? Well, one thing we can be darn right certain of just by reading this is that falling away is bad. That is certain. In fact, it is so bad that its effect is permanent. It seals the eternal destruction of the person who does it. Look look, look at the language there again. I'll just highlight it for you here. And then have fallen away, this person, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. They cannot be restored again to repentance. If a person were to fall away, they would never be restored again. Why? Because they could not repent. What's repentance? Repentance is turning from our sins to God. Repentance is required for salvation. That's what it is. It's turning from my sins in belief to Jesus. That's what it is. It's, in fact, said like that, repentance is the sole requirement for the promise of eternal life. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that repentance is a gift from God. You've got to get this right in your heads to continue to understand this. This is Peter, shortly after the day of Pentecost, preaching to people in Solomon's portico, the temple Grounds in Jerusalem. He says this, God, having raised up his servant, that's Jesus, sent him to you first, Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter says that it is God who does the turning. He turns you from your wickedness. Later in Acts 11, this is actually again, Peter, this is, this is after the first confirmed group of unquestionably non-Jewish Gentiles, prior to being circumcised, prior to having other parts of their lives attuned to Judaism, they get saved, and the Christians are going, whoa, 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 you don't have to be Jewish to be saved? This was a big deal for them, if you've read the book of Acts, this is huge. And look, look what is said about these people. When they heard these things, they fell silent. The room, when they hear, oh my goodness, Gentiles are getting saved? They fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. Who grants repentance? God does. 2 Timothy 2.24-25 And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's what the Bible says about repentance. You and I pray for our loved ones. What do we pray for them? How do we pray? That they would repent of their sins and turn in faith to Jesus. That's what we pray. We pray that God would grant them repentance. That's what needs to happen. 
But when a person falls away, according to our text today, God will not grant him or her repentance. That's that's what's being stated. After a person has fallen away, God will not give that person the gift of repentance. Why? Go back to our text again. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So why can't a fallen away person be given that gift of repentance, be restored again to repentance? Why not? Because it would require another crucifixion. And since it is not possible for our resurrected Christ to be crucified again, it is not possible for a person to be restored again after falling away. So what does this mean? I want you you to think practically what what this means. There's there's a bunch of questions we're going to have to deal with, but just one at a time. Let's think about this. What does this look like for us in our lives? If a friend of yours were to turn their back on God, pursue sin instead of righteousness, maybe they'd once gone to church with you. Maybe they once called themselves a believer. And then had forsaken the faith, gone for a season, and then repented of their sins, that person would be saved. Because clearly, they had not truly fallen away. If a person falls away, they cannot repent. Therefore, the truly repentant person has evidently not fallen away. They're not that. Whatever that list is talking about, they're not that. You and I don't ever have to look in the eyes of a repentant person. Oh, goodness, I can't believe my sins. I hate that I did that. I can't believe what I've done. I I want God, not my sins. I want to love him most, not those things. I want to be free from this stuff. None of us will ever have to look in the eyes of that person and say, too bad for you. Every genuinely repentant person has the gift of eternal life. We've already been given an illustration of this. Remember back to the Israelites in chapter 3? They refused to believe God's promise. Quick backstory for those who weren't here. A few chapters ago, our author cited an Old Testament psalm written by David. And in citing that psalm, he talked about a period of time when the Israelites first left Egypt. They were supernaturally redeemed by God, rescued out of slavery in Egypt... And after they had been given a, 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 a literally a rulership, they had given a priest over them, uh, they'd been given a system of worship, they'd been given an army to defend them, they'd been provided by food and water and government and all the types of things that a community of a million plus people would need, they're brought to the promised land where God told them that he would bring them safely into. And they refused to enter. They rebelled against him. No, we're not going in. And God sent them out to the wilderness, to die. For 40 years, they would wander, that all the older people, those, those who could not feign ignorance, the adults of that generation, would all die off, and it wouldn't be until the next generation that they'd be allowed to enter in. And our author used their story, used the story of those people as a warning to us today. He goes, don't forget that story. Don't be like that. Listen to what he said in Hebrews 3.12. 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Don't be like them. Now question, how many of those rebellious Israelites were restored again to repentance and entered into the promised land? None of them. None. The only two who were permitted in, Caleb and Joshua, if you go back to the story, they did not reject God's promise. They were the only two who held to God's promise. That's why they were allowed in. But all, all of them, 100% of those who turned away from God were not restored to repentance and entering into the promised land. Their story was used as an illustration for our benefit. Essentially saying the same thing. Thus is the state of those who fall away. So back to our question. Who are those here who fall away? Who's being talked about? Here's the options again. False converts who have finally and definitively rejected the gospel. Or genuine believers who have lost their salvation. Which does our author have in mind? False converts or genuine believers? And I think that he has in mind genuine believers. Now, real quick, we can all see, no matter what you think about this passage, all of us can see this is a warning given to Christians. The Christians are the ones receiving this warning. In fact, I made this argument back in chapter 3 when he warned his Christian audience to not fall away back then. I spent weeks on this one. And so just real quick to summarize the main points that I tried to drive home in those couple of weeks. Number one, Christians cannot lose their salvation. And number two, we are given genuine warnings to not apostatize. And it's the warnings that God uses to preserve the believer. Again, Christians cannot lose their salvation. And these passages are warning Christians about what would happen if they disbelieved. Both of those things. We don't, we don't have the right to do fancy footwork to get around these things. We, we have to just believe what the Bible says, what God has delivered for our benefit. He will preserve his people perfectly. How? Through warnings. Weeks I spent on that. And I'll, I'll, next week we'll talk about that again. But first, let me show you why I think it is that this passage refers to genuine believers. It is true that many people, many believers today, struggle with seeing it that way because it, well, hold on, if this is saying that's genuine believers, then, oh my goodness, it must be saying that believers actually do fall away. I do not believe that that's the case. But let's take one thing at a time. How can we feel confident? How can I feel confident to preach today that this is genuine believers being warned? I'm going to give you five reasons. Number one, that list in verses four through five seems most naturally to refer to regenerate people. Doesn't it? Now, while I do think it's possible that it could refer to unregenerate people, non-Christians, I think it's poss- it is possible. I believed that for a long time. It's far more natural of a reading to see it as believers. So what comes to mind when I read this to you? Uh, Picture people who have been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift. People who have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Who do you think of? Believers. 
It's the most natural way. You're, you're going to have to do some fancy footwork around several of those at the very least in order to try to make the case that it's not genuine believers. I think it's, I think it's Christians. First reason, because the text makes it seem most naturally that's what's being talked about. Second reason, a parenthetical teaching on the fate of a non-Christian would not fit the flow of this chapter. Remember, his aim is to prompt the people to listen up and be mature in their thinking. So, so imagine this. Listen up. The priesthood stuff is important. Oh, by the way, uh, false converts who lead the faith won't get into heaven. Back to Melchizedek. You, you see what I mean? It seems to me far more natural of a flow of this text. For him to be saying, I wish you weren't so dull of hearing. You should be more mature by now. You need to be able to understand what I'm about to tell you. And while I had not planned on reteaching you the foundations of the faith, I will do it, if God permits. Because if any one of you falls away, there will be no hope for you. So listen up. That to me fits way more the way that the author is talking to his audience. Third reason. Verse 6 says that those fallen away people could not be restored again, which implies that they had already been restored but could not be restored again. Tracking? It's a restoring to where they had been. Apparently, the author envisions a place of positivity where they had been, where they'd fallen from, that they'd be returned to. This is not the way the rest of the Bible talks about conversion. The rest of the Bible talks about conversion, not as a place that we started and then lost and then came back to. The rest of the Bible tells us that we were dead and had to be made alive. We were lost and then made found. So for us to be in a positive state must have mean that he's thinking of people who are already found, people who are already born again, people who are already adopted, all of those kinds of things. Furthermore, that verse says that the reason they could not be restored again is because then they would need for Christ to be crucified again. Crucifying once again. See that? Which also implies that those people have already received the benefits of Christ's crucifixion in the first place. So, again, one more reason. That's the third reason. I think this is talking about actual believers. The fourth reason. The fall away warning has already been aimed at Christians in chapter 3 and will again in chapter 10. It makes sense for him to now draw on that same language again and double down on his warning by explaining the consequences for falling away. In other words, the view that this describes Christians best fits with the clearest understanding of the rest of Hebrews. And the fifth, and perhaps to me the most significant reason why I think this is talking about believers, is because false conversion is not an unforgivable sin. Remember again the impossibility of repentance for the one who falls away? If the author intended to describe a false convert in verses 4 through 5, we already know from the rest of Scripture and perhaps from our own personal experience that some people do in fact think they're saved, then rebel, and still repent. That could describe so many young men and women who grew up in the Christian church and then leave the faith, so to speak. And when they reach adulthood, so many of those people do eventually repent. They turn in faith toward God. 
I do not believe that this paragraph is meant to say that there's only one shot for a person in this life. You become a member at a church, you're received as a Christian at that body, maybe you get baptized and are part of all the serving projects and you do all things with other believers, and then have a season of time in which doubt drives you to run from that community. And later you want to return, return. False conversion is not an unforgivable sin. This describes so many people. Those are the reasons I think it is most likely that this author has in mind to warn these Christians with a real warning to them as real believers. Now, if this is talking about genuinely regenerate people, actual Christians, they believe in Jesus for salvation, who fall away, does that mean that a person can lose his or her salvation? That's the obvious question now, right? Isn't it? Whoa, whoa, whoa. So if he's saying it's impossible for the Christian who's fallen away to be restored again, doesn't that necessarily mean that a Christian can, in fact, fall away? No, it does not. I want you to consider for a moment, this text does not say that a born-again person can fall away. It doesn't say that. What does the text say? The text says that it's impossible for a fallen-away person to repent and receive eternal life. That's what it actually says. And it really matters to see that. Because it is absolutely true to say That no matter what a person believes about himself, if he were to fall away, he would not be saved. All of us can say that. He's utilizing this strong, sincere language to warn us. He desires to produce perseverance for the believer. Next week, Lord willing, I'm going to show you several reasons from this very text why it is that we can be assured that a genuine believer cannot lose his or her salvation. I'll say this again next week. But it's really easy to go, well, I disagree with this passage and what I think it says because I have other passages. You you might be able to do that in some way. But we don't need to do that. Right here, this author provides assurance for the believers in his charge. And we're going to get to those things next week. But here's the crux of what I think we need to take from this today. No matter how you cut it, this is a warning to us. Be warned. Apostasy is irreversible. And why do you need to hear that? Because there have been many, many people in history who thought they were saved, who thought they were good, who thought, I'm a genuine believer, and then thought, no way I can fall away, and then fell away. Don't you see how the warning is robbed if you play the game? It's not to me. In past weeks, I've used the illustration. We we give warnings to our children. Don't run into the street. And what do we say? Because you'll get hit by a car and die. And those warnings are effective. My kids have not yet, to this date, by God's grace, run into the street. The warnings worked. It would be foolish 
for a Christian to say, I can, I can disbelieve. I can turn my back on God. I can pursue sin. I can forsake his bride, Christ's bride, the church. I can, I can throw all of that out. I'm, who cares? I'm fine. No, you're not. If you forsake God, you don't go to heaven. It's just that simple. It's really not that complicated. And we as believers are to take these warnings. This is why when we get to passages like this, we've got to just preach it. We have to just walk through them. Look! And encouragement will come. It will come. But as believers, we need to receive these warnings as they actually are. Let's pray. Father, I just ask this morning that as we, we begin, we're in a part one of at least two. Uh, if, if you, in your grace, allow us to get back together this next week and to walk through these texts again. Lord, Lord, I pray that you would take these words and that you would use them to produce perseverance in our hearts. Yes, Lord, we know, we know that in your perfect, loving grace, that once a person has been justified, he cannot not be justified. His sins are no longer counted against him, but are laid on Jesus on the cross and dealt with, and there is no double jeopardy. Yes, Lord, we celebrate these things from all over the Bible, but Father, let us take these words very seriously. Let us be the kind of Christian community that watches out for one another. And, and when we, we, we hear from our brother that, that I'm struggling, I need help, that we step in. That we don't coddle difficult issues and say, oh, don't worry, you, you can do whatever you want, you'll be fine. Lord, help us to use Bible language. Help us to hold fast to these things. Help us to not turn our mind and eyes away from the complicated stuff, the difficult stuff. Help us to not be dull of hearing. Oh, Lord, help us to receive the rebuke from, from last week's passage, that we would not harumph at passages that are hard and think that we ought not investigate and spend energy to grow up into the ability to study through them. Lord, help us be the kind of people that care sincerely about believing in you and care actually about that, that we seek to help one another remain believing until we see your face. Father, we love you. We trust your word. We submit to what you say. We just want to understand it better. Give us the gift of trust in your word, we ask, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.